Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to be a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. This is part two of our journey into the early days of the podcast, and it's not a coincidence that it is released on the week of Thanksgiving in the U.S. I'm grateful to these guests who agreed to come in the early episodes of a brand new show with an inexperienced interviewer, and they surprised me and taught me something new every time. The last episode featured the first four guests and had a strict focus on leadership tips. Today, you will hear from the four guests that helped me establish the broadness of the themes that I wanted to cover. With them, I started to talk about leadership and authenticity in a few different ways. The guests today include Erin Barra from episode five, Dr. Steve Iacovelli from episode six, Ren Fishkin from episode eight, and Marcel Quiroga from episode nine. We start with Erin Barra, the director of popular music at Arizona State University. She's a songwriter, producer, instrumentalist, music tech consultant. She's an educator and creative entrepreneur. In short, she's a true byproduct of the volatile music industry. Erin established herself as a courageous leader and an advocate for groups that are normally disenfranchised in the music business. She founded Beats by Girls, an organization that empowers young women in music technology, a field traditionally dominated by men. She's also the Global Chair of Education and Technology for Women in Music, the industry's leading nonprofit working towards gender equity. At the time of the interview, Erin had left her position as a songwriting professor at the prestigious Berklee College of Music, arguably one of the top two or three music schools in the world. She left that spot to go to Arizona State, where she launched a whole new program designed to make world-class music and business education accessible to a much broader population. In this portion of the conversation, we discuss how she made the transition from artist to full-time advocate and educator, and how the process of setting up a successful dynamic for teaching a creative discipline is similar to creating the right environment to encourage creative ideas in a business. At what point did you go from, I can help other women learn how to make music because there's a market demand to, you know, taking sort of the next step, which is your desire about community organizing and really doing it because from the times we have talked in in the past i really get a sense that now there's a mission connected you know the idea of going from i'm doing this because women are paying me to do it to i'm doing this because it's a cause how did that transition happen and and you know and when did you really start embracing it hmm. i don't know i i feel like this idea of community service was always a part of my... I mean, it's a part of my origin story, right? Like even with my mother and my family, there was... We were a part of a group called the National Charity League and we would do like certain number of hours in service of others. And my parents are, you know, big time Catholics. And it's always about like being a part of a community and helping everybody else. So that's kind of just the way that I was brought up in a sense. And so it's weird to talk about because in a way... Beats by Girls and all this activism stuff, it really came from a place that was almost just fear because of what was happening to my artist career. But it morphed. Like, I, There's no part of me that gives back to the community because I'm trying to get recognition in any you know, sense of the word. But I don't, I don't clearly know when that happened. It just always felt like something I needed to do. And I still like, you'd be surprised at how hard I have to fight sometimes even to be taken seriously by myself. So I think that the fact that I still have to struggle with it, you know, even at whatever level I've reached, that it it just fuels me in a way like I'm just mad. I'm still mad about it all, you know, that we are not authorized to do things that I believe we should be able to do. Yeah. And that's in some ways, that's a even more powerful position than in, in being an artist. It can be. <laughs> There's a lot. It's complex. Let's say there are layers to it. <laughs> so obviously, as you, you know, progress through your career from somebody who was an artist and then was teaching other artists on how to produce and then became a professor, I am assuming that as you are working with younger artists, there's more to it than just the technical and technical side of it. What are some of like 
the key important lessons, you know, as it relate to artists, as they're developing or songwriters that you work with that, you know, that did you pass on to them? There's a few. <laughs> I think that creating culture is a really important thing in a classroom and in a workplace because you want to facilitate people to be their best selves, right? And you can do that through like through fear, you know, some, some people use fear in the workplace or in the classroom to make somebody deliver. Um, but I think that artists in particular and or any emotional being for that matter needs to be, needs to be treated as such. Like you really have to meet somebody where they're at. Right. And I thought, I think that's what really great leaders do in a sense is, you know, understand an individual and then react accordingly. And for songwriters, they need to feel supported and heard, right? So it's a lot of creating a space where people feel comfortable and able to be vulnerable and to talk about their feelings because that's, you know, it's, that's music, that's art, it's like feeling feelings, right? So creating a space where you can do that is important. And that's not to say that there's not a place for constructive criticism or, you know, real pressure to grow. But I, I think that those things in my classrooms and in my workplaces, they're not mutually exclusive. Like there can be a certain level of excellence and then simultaneously the ability to be empathetic and emotional at the same time. And so that's important to, to, to pass on to students. And I think that that's something that you do through every, every word that you use when you're choosing them or the way that you use your body, the way you stand, the energy that you give off to people, right? And that's it's hard. It's like not something you can teach necessarily. It's just a, just a way of being in a sense. But in the other side of it, and I think this is true in, in workplaces as well, it's like if you forget why you're doing something or if the joy has somehow escaped the equation, like it, it doesn't make any sense, right? So I'm constantly reminding them and especially at a school like Berkeley where the rigor and the competition is so high that like, if you have lost the joy that you had initially fostered in making music because you went to music school and now it became something more serious, then you are not doing something correct. So I make a really concerted effort to have assignments that almost require a sense of like silliness or or joyfulness that you have to you, you can't do it you've done it wrong if you didn't have a good time doing it so when you create joy in a workplace or a classroom and you create a culture where people feel comfortable and then you push then that's like this joyful expression of growth that for me is that's where it's at at least that's where the good stuff comes especially for artists so let, let me quickly rephrase. So basically, I think what you're saying is that you need to create a safe space first to then be able to kind of like push them because as a professor, you're still accountable for their development and, and but you're dealing with, you know, a creative individual. So it's this fine balance of on one hand, reminding them that their art is worth it, but on the other hand, like, helping them keep themselves accountable to make the most of their art. Would this be a good rephrasing? Yeah, absolutely. When you do that, and then when it comes down to it, let's say if somebody's sharing their work and you give them a piece of constructive criticism, they take it totally differently as well. It's, it's like a, it's a gift almost. <laughs> you know, they're like, thank you. I'm going to do better where in other other circumstances it can feel like a an attack. And so it is it's just a it's a really delicate balance. Right because for our listeners who may not be familiar of how a songwriting class works, you know, most of the time students come with their creative work and then they're sort of the work is criticized publicly by both the teacher and the peers. So this is something that I think could have a lot of applications to the work environment. How do you regulate the participation and the, the peers? Because on one hand, you want to make sure that, you know, it doesn't become gratuitous or abusive. But on the other hand, in a creative class, having participation from everybody is what makes the learning happen. 
I mean, I think you have to set certain norms before you even begin, like having conversations about what is good feedback and what is not useful feedback. And so, you know, and I model it. There's always logic or reason. And if somebody, I mean, there's so many good examples of bad feedback. One is, wow, that was so great. <laughs> that's not helpful. That's not helpful at all. I mean, it's a, that's a positive piece of feedback as well. And so often I'll, I'll just... I'll probe, I ask questions. Why? Why was that so good? I don't know. Her voice was just, it was so lovely. I just liked it. Why? Well, you know, and and then it's, I think once you start to challenge people, you can find out information by asking why over and over. And then on bets on both sides, you know, if somebody's like, I didn't like that. Well, why? You know, once you start really trying to get at the root of it. Unless people know what they're saying or have something useful to say, they usually will just keep it to themselves because they know that I'm I'm going to expose or search for the reasons why somebody would say something. Next up is Dr. Steve Iacovelli. Steve is the founder and principal of Top Dog Learning Group, a firm that provides guidance and solutions in leadership, change management, diversity, and inclusion. He has created leadership development programs, given keynotes and coach one-on-one at some of the most prestigious global firms and institutions. Places like Disney, IBM, Bayer, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and The Ohio State University. I invited Steve because he's someone who didn't just fully embrace his authentic self at the workplace. He actually built his whole platform around his identity. Steve markets himself as the gay leadership dude. I really love the nickname because it is a strong statement, but it also makes it very approachable. His critically acclaimed book, Pride Leadership, Strategies for LGBTQ Plus Professionals to be the King and Queen of their Jungle, reflects this stance. While it is written from an LGBTQ plus perspective, the focus is on leadership lessons that can be applied by everyone. In the segment you will hear, Steve talks about how to make business case for better equity and inclusion how to win over naysayers, and also how he made the decision to use the gay leadership dude moniker. What are some of the challenges and some of the practical steps that, you know, leaders that want to improve the equity situation in their companies can take? Self-awareness is always the number one answer. I've had some really interesting conversations, both on podcasts as well as offline. And you can tell when people ask the questions about very pointedly that they don't have a whole lot of self-awareness of kind of the systemic disenfranchisement that's been happening for way too long. I had a gentleman say on a podcast not too long ago, we were being interviewed, and he's like, and he basically asked a question to the extent of, well, don't all lives matter? And I'm like, oh, you just don't get it. And, and I think that's the opportunity where we can ask that not just of ourselves, but of those around us, you know, what are we doing to educate ourselves to truly understand? I will never understand what it's like to be a black man or a woman in our society. Of course not. But what am I doing as a white cisgender gay dude? to try to empathize as best I can and also to support and use my voice to help build that uh, equitable and just society. And so it's reading, it's asking, and number one answer, it's listening. And not just to paraphrase Stephen Covey, listen to respond, but truly listen to understand what people are saying about their experience, whatever, insert the you know, inequitable state situation here. There's a lot more research that is coming from traditional places that also points to the key economic benefits like McKinsey is publishing cross national and cross industry study that show actually the economic impact of diversity how do you bring that into the conversation with your clients it's an awesome question and uh, stating the business case for diversity inclusion and and belonging is, is kind of how I phrase it I actually do it in all my workshops and I when I could go on site or when my team and I could go on site or now we're doing virtual. But regardless of which ones, you know, some people are there because they're really excited. And there's others who are in the sessions because they're voluntold. You know, their boss said it's a great idea or it's somebody's initiative. And they're like, oh, rats. And you can read the room a little bit when, when you see that. So I, I always start the conversation with kind of like if you picture a continuum, kind of a, a three-point continuum. On one side, the reason an organization, a workplace, a business focuses on diversity, inclusion, and belonging is because it's the right thing to do. It makes the world better. We all feel good. We bring our best selves to work. You do more output. Yes. 
That's awesome. It's the right thing to do for the world. On the completely opposite end of that same continuum is the punitive. We do it because we have to. We're being forced to. There's rules, regulations, laws, etc. that force us to be more inclusive. Meh. But that's the truth. And then in the middle is the business case for diversity, inclusion, and belonging. And so I always phrase it to folks, you might be here like I am because I want the world to be more awesome and we are inclusive and feel good for everybody. You might be here because, well, I was voluntold, but I don't want to you know, get us into trouble by doing something I shouldn't. I said, but let's think about the things in the middle, because I would guarantee that every single person in this room, virtual or otherwise, wants your organization to succeed. Yes or no? Well, of course it does, Steve. That keeps my job. I, yes. Great. So we want to focus on the business case. And you know what's going to happen? You're slowly going to get to that, hey, this makes the world better too. Awesome sauce. And so I, I think when you approach it from that perspective, from that middle, you're already going to have people on either end. But that middle one is that, that you know, proverbial bell curve. And that really allows people to kind of get on board more quickly than sitting there, you know, voluntold, hands crossed in the back, not really listening to the conversation at hand. Going back to that middle point, what are some of the practical competitive advantages and benefits for a business from having a more equitable and a more diverse? You cite many of the Kinsey research, which is kind of some of the best stuff out there. And I think, forgive me if I'm wrong, I think they do it every two years or something to that effect is, is when they do the work. I don't know how often it is, but what I have seen is a lot of like beat pieces of it. I, I'm interested, like, I'm just going to put you back in a room where you have a mix of people. There's a couple of people who are super enthusiastic and there's a big chunk of the people who are there because the boss told them that they have to be there and they are participating. But you know that there's a chance that half of them, the second you leave the company may not implement it. And so like, okay, let me give you some quick pointers, like places or areas where more diversity and more equity actually benefit? What are some of the three points that you roll off in a situation like that? So the, the first would be diversity of thought, and that you could apply that to pretty much any workplace team or scenario. I, I use an example, there was a client I was working with, and we were having this conversation. And they said, you know, it's funny. And, and they, they produced a lot of different things. But one of the things that they, they created was like, like, kind of use the term tchotchkes, you know, little tiny gifts and things of that nature. And and they said, you know, it's funny that you say that because we did a kind of a, a demographics quick study of the people on the project team. And one of the people on the team was left-handed. And one of the things that we were creating was a mug, but the mug and the way they put the decal was always for a right-handed person because everybody else in the room was right-handed. And, and this woman said, I'm left-handed. And so if I use it that way, it's not going to be the same experience. And they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. That's a little thing, but just think of the profit share that they could have lost by selling it to all the left-handed people in their market sh- marketplace. And you can kind of start to pick through that with really any demographic. And I love the um, the definition of diversity, which is by G- Garden Schwartz and Rowe, two awesome women in, in LA, and they created the five layers of diversity. And so what it does is, is, and I won't go too deep into it, but it really helps us think about the concept of, of diverse humans beyond what most folks go toward, which is race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, physical ability. And those are very, very, very important. Of course they are. But there's other ways to also consider diversity that's maybe a little less impactful, but doesn't still diminish what makes us all unique humans. The handedness is is just one of those. And so I think you start to think about from that perspective, then you start to take a step back and look at leadership. McKinsey and uh, and several other studies show that if you have diverse boards of directors, C-suites, your profits are better. And so you start sharing those types of conversations during the business case to be like, you know, you don't want to miss out on market share by you're always putting, for example, images of families and they're always the the white 20 something, you know, two heterosexual couples with the 2.5 kids. Yes, that is a family in our modern society, but there's a heck of a lot others. And so if you don't consider those in your marketing and what you're showing on your recruitment stuff, then you're not, people aren't seeing themselves and they're less apt to go with you. And therefore you're also disenfranchising some really awesome talent by not being as open and inclusive as you could be. That's great. I'm curious, as we have this whole conversation around diversity, you made a very conscious and deliberate choice not to just be who you are, but to lead from who you are. You actually called yourself the gay leadership dude. So what was exciting? What was scary about taking that step? Take me a little bit through the journey and some of the key moments. 
So when my friend Ruth and I started Top Dog Learning Group, and her last name is Bond, she's literally British, so she's very British and bald, you know. And my last name Iacovelli is very Americanized Italian. And so most people who do what we do, they they throw their names together and they're like, you know, Bond and Iacovelli and Associates. Like, meh, that's boring. So we like dogs. So that's kind of how Top Dog started. I didn't even own a dog at the time, but I'm like, I like dogs. That's kind of cool. So that was the brand that we started. And that's, you know, we worked with, like I said, more Fortune 500, larger not-for-profit organizations. Flash forward to 2018. I was at a conference and I'm in between sessions. I'm kind of sorting business cards. There's a woman next to me sorting her business cards before we go in. She's like, what do you do? I'm like, oh, top dog, diversity, inclusion, change management, blah, blah, blah. How about you? She's like, I'm a publisher. I'm like, you know, there's a leadership book in my head that needs to come out. She's like, well, let's get that book out. And flash forward, Jen is my publisher now. But as we were going down the path of publishing and I was just sketching out the, the ideas in the book... I started looking around at uh, other leaders around me, specifically, uh, you know, I, I do a lot of volunteer work in LGBTQ organizations, uh, social justice, that kind of stuff. And so I started just like observing my fellow queer leaders out in, in the workplace. And then uh, if you remember the Sex in the City show back in the 90s or whatever, Carrie's always typing the, the main character. She's a writer. And she's like, I couldn't help but wonder is how she always started her column. And I, it kind of hit my head. I'm like, I can't help but wonder, is there something about being a queer leader that gives you an opportunity to exercise your leadership muscles, maybe slightly differently or, or more readily available than my, my straight brothers and sisters? And side note, if you're listening, uh, my book does not say that my straight friends cannot be awesome leaders. That is not the case. However, there is things. So you, we go back to authenticity. Well, I know personally that every time I am in a situation, whether it be a client, a new coworker, whatever... I have an option to be my authentic self or to hide who I truly am, you know, to, to change the pronouns of what did you do this weekend with Steve? Oh, well, me and my friend Chris went out, you know, gender neutral kind of stuff. So it's always that opportunity that I keep having to, to make that choice to say, oh, my husband, Richard of 23, 24 years and blah, blah, blah. Well, that actually, if you look at the research, the Brene Browns and all the cool research stuff out there about authenticity, that's the kind of behavior they're saying you should do as a leader, period, regardless of your, your sexual orientation. So that's kind of how the book Pride Leadership started and how I filtered it through that lens. So then as I'm kind of in the bits writing the book, I realized that I kind of needed to own it. And so, you know, Top Dog is my company brand, which is me and my pack, if you will, my top doggers, my consultants. But my personal brand is the gay leadership dude, trademark. I'm the only one in the world now. <laughs> but uh, that's kind of where I, I kind of hang my personal hat and, and what I'm doing. Now, what I typically do is co-brand anything I do now, you know, Top Dog Learning Group and the gay leadership dude proudly present, blah, 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 blah. And it, it does a couple things. One, it's a really big, massive red flag that, ooh, this is a diverse you know, or embracing differences kind of organization. Yay. And then two, it allows me to kind of open up some different conversations because you know people are either into dogs or they're like, oh, I know gay people or I am a gay person or whatever that looks like. And so it just gives that, that opportunity to really humanize the story that we're bringing to any client that we have out there. Rand Fishkin is considered one of the top digital marketers in the world. He earned his recognition because he dedicated his professional life to helping people be better marketers. His Whiteboard Fridays were must-see streaming for SEO practitioners all over the world from the mid-2000s. The first company he founded, Moz, provided one of the first comprehensive set of SEO tools for marketers. Always on the leading edge of marketing, Rand is now on to his second venture, SparkToro. He is the co-founder and CEO. SparkToro helps marketers find the true sources of influence for the audiences that they want to reach. Aside from being an amazing marketer, Rand is an incredibly self-aware entrepreneur. His book, Lost and Founder, is one of the most brutally honest and helpful books ever written about the reality of startups. It is incredibly candid and full of what Rand calls cheat codes for entrepreneurs. If you're thinking about founding or joining a tech startup or a part of one right now as a leader or employee, you should go get the book right after you listen to the podcast. In the segment I'm going to play, Rand gives a pretty frank assessment of what it was like to make the transition from marketing expert to CEO while he was at Moz. He also talks about the importance of not just creating company values, but actually living them. And finally, as a few hard questions that founders should ask themselves as they decide how they want to build their own company. There's certain points in your book when you talk about things that happened at Moz. Obviously, right now with SparkToro, you had the opportunity to restart, sort of fresh, start anew. But at the same time, my assumption is that 
the leader that you were when you started out Moz is very different than who you were even through your time at Moz. What, what were some of the moments at Moz where you felt through that you made a significant change? Hmm. I mean, I think that starting a company and growing it is a constant learning process. So, you know, I would say every 18 months to two years, I was probably a very different person. I had different learnings and yeah, tough to identify those precise moments, but certainly transitioning from consulting being the primary business to software made me a very different kind of entrepreneur and, and marketer and leader and product builder. I think that growing from a team of people who all knew each other to a team of people who you know, viewed each other sort of as separate groups. Engineering does this, marketing does that, product does this, design does this. You know, that was another kind of big change um, and a very uncomfortable one for me. I, I don't ever want to do that again. I have no desire to build a company of more than 50 people again. I, yeah, it doesn't align with my interests. So I think those are big moments that many entrepreneurs I've talked to have have similar experiences. One of the things that struck me in the book is how thoughtful and mature were the the values at Moz. I know like there's moments where, you know, probably as a as an entrepreneur, you're like, oh, maybe we were not that close to them, but it, there's certainly a level of awareness that is and thoughtfulness in the way that the values are articulated. When did you realize that you needed to go through the process? What, what was the spark that made you decide that you needed to actually sit down and articulate the values and put them on paper? Yeah, really simple answer. It was actually one of our investors, Michelle Goldberg, gave me a copy of, I think, Good to Great, which is a you know very well-known business book now. And now, you know, in hindsight, I think there's a lot of people who look at that book and go, ah, a lot of the conclusions are not correct. And this oversimplifies and yada, yada. But one of the findings in the book was that companies that articulated and lived up to their values tended to last much longer and be much more successful than those who did not. And so we literally used the process that was that was written down there to do it internally. I, I think it was a useful process. I think it was very good when we stuck to it and when we were small. And then as we scaled... It just became very, very, very difficult to build a team and culture around those values at scale and very difficult to maintain it through a leadership transition as well. So I, I don't know. What, for my last few years that I was on Moz's board of directors, you know, after I had stepped down as CEO, I encouraged the CEO, the new CEO, to change the values, right? To change tag fee. Like tag fee are, are my values. Doesn't I don't think they're yours. I don't think they're the companies as it presents itself today. And I think it's really terrible to have a set of stated values of expressed values that you sort of put on the wall and the website that are not lived up to internally. I think that's actually worse than having no values statements written at all. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And let me also add that it is rare and refreshing to see a founder who is willing to say, you know, my the companies I would leave my values, so go ahead and create some new ones. I want to switch gear here. Something that surprised me from the book. I think that the, the thousands of people that have seen you speak at marketing conferences that have followed your White Bird Fire Day videos on Moz and your blogging on Moz and on you know, Spark Tora now, and that see you as a as a definitely a great leader in the industry, one of the pioneers of SEO, would be surprised if uh, they read about the imposter syndrome that you're talking about in the book. And I'm wondering, where do you think that comes from? I think, let's see, I suspect that some of it is biology and some of it is whatever, culture, and some of it is upbringing. Th those are generally the forces that shape us as human beings. And for me, almost all of my career has been feeling like I am not good enough and not worthy and that I need to do more to prove myself to, to myself and others. And it certainly is the case that no amount of sort of prestige or recognition can really fill up that hole. Temporarily, it can. <laughs> right? So I think one of the reasons that I, 
am relatively good at consistently, whatever, creating new content and publishing it and amplifying it and earning recognition from from sort of the marketing world and, you know, getting on stages and speaking and all, all those kinds of things is because I have this, whatever, deep hole inside of me that can only temporarily be filled by the praise and accolades of others and then and then it needs to be refilled again and that's uh not a super healthy way to live but it is a good way to be decently productive um and so i think that over time coming to terms with that recognizing it and then simply finding outlets productive outlets healthy outlets that are not abusive or problematic uh either to myself or people around me that works yeah. And speaking of productive outlets that are actually helpful to the people around you, your book is fabulous. As I mentioned, it's full of great, you call them cheat codes for entrepreneurs, actually recommended to all the founders that I work with and mentor. But, you know, in that theme, what are two or three tips that you could share with us now for people who are thinking about starting a business or are already running a startup? I would strongly encourage folks to try and be as conscientious as possible about why they are building what they're building. What is driving their decision to create a company the way that they are doing it? it is that outside forces? Is that, you know, whatever, culture and press and prestige and external motivators? Or are there intrinsic motivations that are driving that and what are those and where do they come from? I think asking those questions is really hard. And oftentimes we don't we don't find the full truth of it, but that's that's okay. The process is still worthwhile. The second thing I would strongly consider is let's see, what I want to say is is the conditions for success and failure. I think if you can create a company where you don't have to do all that much to be considered a success in, to yourself and to your team and whatever for your industry, that is very, very powerful and, and hard to replicate. I think it's frustratingly in direct opposition to the external forces that, that kind of drive a lot of entrepreneurial motivation. So most of the entrepreneurial industry, especially in our world, you know, like technology and marketing and software and, you know, sort of Western capitalism is very, very focused on size of company in terms of, you know, numbers of people and numbers of customers and revenue, sales, personal wealth. Like those are the primary signals we're told to look for in entrepreneurship. And they're probably some of the least healthy ones. I would urge folks, if you want to focus on the financial side, I would focus on profits over sales and revenue. If you want to focus on happiness, I would worry much less about size. It tends to be the case that most entrepreneurs I know who have businesses between 5 and 50 employees are much happier than those who have businesses with 100 to 500 to 5,000. I, I think almost all of us are instructed to be envious and attempt to follow in the footsteps of people who've built giant businesses, you know, Larry and Sergey at Google, or Bill Gates at Microsoft, or, or Jeff Bezos and Amazon, and like, that's who we're supposed to worship. Terrible idea. Super terrible idea. You don't want to compare yourself to those people. Let's be real. They are hardworking and relatively smart and talented. But 90 to 95% of the reason that they are so dramatically different from someone who runs a 50-person business is, well, they got lucky. Most of society, including themselves, are unwilling to ascribe their success to luck because that takes away from the prestige of what they feel like they've accomplished and what they deserve and how they deserve to be treated differently and how they shouldn't pay taxes and yada, yada, yada. But reality is, it, it is, it's luck. Timing, luck, market forces, eh. That's just the way it is. So I, these are, I think, really good questions and really good facts to reflect on as you're building your own business. You don't, you don't need to build it for somebody else. Our final guest is Marcel Quiroga. After starting her career at a couple of traditional financial services firm like Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley, 
Marcel founded her own firm, TQM Wealth Partners. TQM stands for Total Quality Management, but as Marcel points out on her site, in Spanish, it also means te quiero mucho, I love you very much, which is very fitting given the philosophy of the firm. Marcel is not your typical founder of a wealth management firm. First of all, she's a woman in an industry that is still very much a male-dominated industry. She grew up in the U.S. from Bolivian parents, went back to Bolivia to start a career, and then came back to the U.S. She put herself through college while working and raising her kids as a single mother. In this segment, you will hear her talk about how these experiences have inspired her to start her own firm and how they have shaped her approach to being a founder. You started your career in finance, you've mentioned, over 20 years ago, and definitely that was a time where being a woman and a, and a Latina in this environment was not necessarily an easy place to be in. And I'm wondering how that experience has shaped your experience and your view on leadership. It has had a big impact on my experience and on who I've become as a leader. I started my career actually in Latin America, in Bolivia, the country where my parents are from originally. And so I was working in a male-dominated industry and in a machista culture. And so I had those two things going against me. And oftentimes I felt like I had to work 10 times as hard. You know, I've heard women say twice as hard, three times as hard. But just given the environment I was in, I felt like it was, you know, 10 times as hard. And for what? Oftentimes for my ideas to be attributed to others or for no recognition at all. And I can truthfully say I was never looking for, you know, an award or a standing ovation. I was just looking to be acknowledged and appreciated. And I think that's an important part of human nature. When I think about my team, I want to acknowledge and appreciate their contributions as well. So when I transitioned in my career to the advisory world, I started working at a brokerage firm here in Boston, in Boston, I'm in the Boston area now. And I haven't been away for from the United States for quite some time, especially in my professional career. I had a different expectation of what the environment was going to be like. And unfortunately, my experience proved me wrong. The way I was treated or the lack of attention and what I mean by attention is being in a meeting room and not being listened to and then having to, you know, raise my voice. And some people tell me now that I have a loud voice and especially in my family. And I think that has become just a, a way of expression for me because of the environment I've worked in and I wanted to be heard and I was tired of saying something. And then the man next to me or across the table saying the same thing and everyone saying, oh, John Smith, that was a great idea. And <laughs> wondering, you know, why didn't anybody hear me say that? And I think I shared with you a story of the first brokerage firm I worked for when I came back to the United States. I was in the elevator going up to my office and there were two men in the elevator with me and they saw that we were all going to the same floor. And so they realized that we worked at the same company and they asked me whose assistant I was. And it was mind boggling because they made a judgment just by looking at me. You know, first of all, I'm a female. At the time, I was, you know, much younger than I am now. And so they judged a book by its cover, I guess. And my answer was, I do the same thing that you do. I'm no one's assistant. And I think that has informed how I stand up for myself and how I want to lead myself first and then lead others. I remember the first time you told me the story and I was so touched by your pride in, in telling the story. So the next question obviously is, how much has the experience of being a woman and a Latina in this financial services world been a factor in your decision to start your own firm? I think it has influenced my decision greatly. I say sometimes, you know, if you can't find 
the solution you're looking for, then create it. And frankly, I couldn't find the environment that I wanted. So I created it. And it goes beyond that, however. It wasn't simply to say, you know, I'm not happy with my surroundings in terms of colleagues, because I've worked with wonderful people, both men and women as well. So it wasn't only about that. It was also about realizing that throughout the years in my career, I had developed a style that I really wanted to be able to implement without the stops that are often put on employees or subordinates of larger companies. And and I understand these are large companies. There's a lot of people, you know, a lot of employees, everyone with a different opinion. So they have to have certain guidelines at least. But when I realized that, and mostly based on feedback from clients, that the way I was approaching my work was different uh, and was adding value, it just all made perfect sense to me to say, I want to create something different for myself, but also for others. So it wasn't about just creating my own perfect playpen. (laughs) It's really about creating something that will add value to the lives of others, but having the, having enough space and and enough uh, flexibility, if you will, in order to do that. Yeah, that's great. Let's keep going down this line. You know, you talked earlier about starting to figure out a little bit of what type of leader you wanted to be, but it's one thing to either have a certain leadership style or think you want to have a leadership style. And it's another thing to be able to articulate clearly your leadership style and then make decisions and build a business consistently with this value. So tell me a little bit about that journey and, and that process for you. Yeah, I think that is a very interesting truth that, you know, we may know our the style of leaders we want to be, or we may have our own style, but do we really know what it is? So I think it definitely takes self-reflection and it takes honesty, being honest with oneself. Because, I mean, you can try to fool other people, but you can't fool yourself. And so to the theme of your podcast is authentic leadership. If you truly want to be authentic, you have to know who you are. And I think ever since I was a child, even though I was not aware of this, who I am and who I was as a child as well was someone who found joy in helping others. And I know in business, we all say we want to help others. We want to help our clients. We want to help our employees, etc. But when I say help, I think it's more about impact, making a difference, having an impact on the world. And I had an experience as a child that really marked the rest of my life, which was representing the United States in the International Fair of the Child when I was 11 years old. And this fair was in Paris, France. It was a UNESCO event. And it gave me an opportunity to learn about how children in third world countries live compared to how I was living here in a first world country. Add to that, that when I was 17, I moved to Bolivia, my parents' country of origin, like I've said before, also a third world country. and. Through a series of experiences that I had while I was there, I think more and more I realized and can say with total conviction that making a difference is really why we're here. That's what I believe. And so, of course, I want to run a profitable business and I want to run a successful business, but part of success is really the impact you're having on others. So I want my team to have a good experience working here. And I want them to thrive by doing what they do here. I want to attract other people who have that desire 
to do well and do good at the same time. And I want my clients to know that what we're doing for them is really beyond the numbers. The numbers, of course, matter. That's why they hire us. They hire us to help them protect and grow their wealth. But I think when they understand that the reason why we do that is because we recognize that their financial wealth serves to enrich their human, social, and spiritual wealth, then they they see that we get it, that they can have great, great success in their careers if you want to measure success from a monetary perspective. But the way they translate that success into other areas of their lives is about the decisions they make with the people they love, the contributions they make to society and the well, the wellness of themselves. And that's the spiritual side as a whole human person, right? Not just as a successful CEO, a successful entrepreneur or a successful professional, like a doctor or an attorney, but really as whole persons. And as a result, I do think that these different experiences in my life and my interest in numbers and in uh, financial wellness have led me to realize that I want to have a business that will touch people's lives beyond a transaction. It's not about transactions. It's about relationships. And so by being aware of all these things that I've said, I think I've come to realize that If I had to call myself one style of leadership, it would be a servant collaborator. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you liked it, go catch up and check out some of the early episodes. Then tell all your friends about the show, tell them that they should listen to it, and then post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating and a review. Remember to stay tuned because at the end of the credits, I will play a song by Susan Catania, one of Boston's best singer-songwriters. Hey, I'm not the one who's saying that. She's nominated once again for the Boston Music Award for Singer-Songwriter of the Year. Now, for more information on the guests, go to the podcast website, AL4EP, which is spelled with the number four, so AL4EP.com. You can also email me at Dino at AL4EP.com. And make sure you're following the show on Twitter and Instagram. Both have the handle at AL4EDP with the letter D. And go to Facebook and find Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. And now, a song from Susan Cattaneo's album, The Hammer and the Heart. It's called When Love Goes Right. Enjoy. Fireflies are sparkling in the August heat That's the main attraction out here in the yard On the very last of our lawn chair days We're leaning back to take in all the stars Feels like heaven's coming down to this Just lovers in the night Nothing more and nothing less That's what's left when love goes right All the love that's come to stay in this old house You see it hanging in the pictures in the hall We've made it through the hard times and a thousand tears 
Cause the thousand kisses made it worth it all Feels like heaven's coming down to this Just lovers in the night Nothing more and nothing less That's what's left when love goes right What's left when love goes? 